Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced this week that he will be retiring, setting the stage for President Biden to make the first Supreme Court nomination of his term. What does Breyer's retirement mean for the Supreme Court moving forward? In addition to that piece of news, NHU submitted comments to CMS this week regarding the proposed notice of benefits and payment parameters for the 2023 plan year. Here to discuss all of this, as usual, is Marcy M. Buckner. As I'm sure all of our listeners know by now, the Supreme Court struck down OSHA's vaccine mandate for large employers while upholding CMS's vaccine mandate for healthcare workers in facilities that accept Medicare or Medicaid payments. So what action did OSHA recently take in response? So I want to be really clear when we're talking about this decision from the Supreme Court. They technically released a ruling that said that OSHA did not have the authority to release an emergency rule in the manner in which they did, requiring employees for those large employers of over 100 to be vaccinated. So it wasn't necessarily that it overturned the, the mandate, but really that they were looking at the authority that Congress grants that agency and what they are able to do with an emergency rule. So where Congress, and this is in the opinion that the Supreme Court released, so where Congress has given OSHA the power to regulate occupational dangers, so that's what is within their powers as an agency, it has not given that agency the power to regulate public health more broadly. And that was really the interpretation that they were looking at here when they released this decision. And this came out, I think, about two weeks ago. And so this went back to some lower courts. There were further challenges of trying to push a final decision further in some of these lower courts. But since then, OSHA has rescinded their emergency rule. They have basically taken back any of their appeals in the lower courts and have said that they are not going to move forward with attempting to enforce this emergency rule for the large employer mandate. They have said that they will possibly look at going through the official rulemaking process similar to how, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, where we had a proposed rule from the administration. So they're going to look at possibly approaching this in a different manner, not going through an emergency rule, possibly going through a larger agency and not through OSHA, since the Supreme Court has said that OSHA is not the entity to address public health more broadly. But that is where we sit now, is with OSHA having rescinded that emergency rule for large employers. So it is no longer pending. We are not anticipating any further court action since they took the rule back. 
but we could see them moving forward with different types of rulemaking. So going by different kind of rules of the game, so to speak, and how you release regulations. So does this mean that the large employer vaccine mandate is all but dead? So for large employers, the requirement, yes, that aspect is dead. It's no longer viable since they've rescinded that rule. However, I do want to make sure people remember that the Supreme Court did uphold and say that HHS had the authority to have healthcare workers or workers in facilities, because remember, it wasn't just considered for those that were healthcare providers. They included in healthcare workers, people who worked at these facilities that received Medicare and Medicaid funding. So that includes other types of staff, custodial staff, others. If you're going there in person, you're included in this. And that vaccine requirement from HHS for workers in those healthcare facilities, that is still upheld. So that vaccine mandate is still in place. As I mentioned earlier, Justice Breyer announced this week that he will be stepping down at the end of his term. Breyer, age 83, is the oldest justice on the bench currently and is associated with the liberal wing of the court. So what does Breyer's retirement mean moving forward? And will there be any cases heard and or decided without him? So there, it's, it's likely not. He's announced his retirement. He said that he will retire at the end of this term for the Supreme Court. Their terms begin in in the fall and end in spring, summer, when we get all of those June decisions, as you guys are well aware of, since many of the large decisions that we have worked with over the years have come out during those fun June days. But he has said that he would like his replacement named, appointed, and confirmed before his retirement is complete. So um, that's why I said it's not likely that we'll see decisions made within eight bench court because he said that he would like to see that seat filled before he officially retires. But I think it could possibly depend on um, whether the Senate is faced with a confirmation process that is a little bit more complicated. Supreme Court justices do have to be confirmed by a majority. We do have that pure split in the Senate. I think that President Biden is, has named a few women that he has looked to to possibly appoint to the Supreme Court. Neither one are very controversial, but in light of some of the other controversial things that the Senate is trying to do, like pass reconciliation with Build Back Better, Voting Rights Act, these other pieces, Politics could come into play with whether the parties want to play together well and move forward and appoint one of President Biden's nominees, and especially if they want to do so in a speedy fashion, or if they want to make President Biden go through and appoint several different justices so that it it takes up the process and that they end up voting against certain appointees. So um, a lot of that is up for determination. We are, are sitting with this news for just, I think, about 24 hours at the time that we're reporting this. So that's what we know right now. And all indications are that President Biden will look to following through with his campaign promise to 
appoint and have confirmed an African-American woman to join the Supreme Court, which, of course, would be the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court bench. So what exactly is the timeline for the president to nominate a new justice? So President Biden is going to act pretty swiftly here. He is going to want to have a nominee confirmed by the midterm elections. The timing is very specific. Justice Breyer is 83 years old, and he has said that he recognizes that there are limitations on his health. And as one of the liberal justices, he wants to make sure that he is retiring during a Democratic presidency so that, supposedly, a liberal justice would be nominated to take his place. And so that is why he is retiring now. He has said that he was approached and considered doing so earlier in the Biden presidency, but wanted to stay on because of specific challenges. We are going to see a decision on affirmative action from this Supreme Court. This is something that Breyer wanted to be included on for the hearings for these cases and a number of other topics as well. So he chose to stay on a little bit longer into the Biden presidency, but is retiring now because, like I said, these hearings and and the confirmation process the Democrats are going to want to use for campaigning for the midterm elections and for President Biden to come through and have an African-American woman confirmed to the Supreme Court. That would do a lot for his support numbers, as well as the Democratic Party, especially when it comes to their voting base. This is definitely something that was not considered lately and will have impacts not just on future decisions from this court, but also political actions as we head towards the midterm elections. Moving on, CMS released the proposed 2023 Notice of Benefits and Payment Parameters, otherwise known as NBPP, earlier this month. CMS releases a proposed NBPP ahead of every planned year, and every year NAHU submits comments with our questions and concerns. This one makes a few substantial changes that we noted in our comment letter, including changes to the guaranteed availability of coverage and past due premiums. So, Marcy, what would this change do and what did we have to say about it? Sure. So for this provision, the proposed rule would prevent issuers for both individual and group markets from applying premium payments made for new coverage to any outstanding debt owed from any previous coverage, and it would prohibit issuers from refusing to begin new coverage due to failure to pay the outstanding premium debt from a previous year. So we understand what the administration is is trying to do here. They're trying to make sure that a debt from previous years doesn't preempt someone from being able to enroll in coverage. So the goal here is access to coverage, making sure folks are able to enroll in coverage. Um, But we did caution that this could have some unintended consequences on the cost of care to kind of cover those debts. And And I don't mean this literally, but where the issuers will be at a loss for some of these accrued debts Whenever issuers are are losing money, if it's because of reimbursement rates, if it's because of claims data, if it's because of un, unpaid premiums, 
whenever these issuers are incurring some type of loss, there's an increase in premiums across the board, and that's shared amongst the markets. So our caution here is to make sure that we're we're not seeing that increase because we are allowing people to enroll in coverage without paying off those previous debts from previous premiums. One proposed change in the NBPP impacts members directly, suggested new standards of conduct for agents, brokers, and web brokers. What would these new standards be, and what did NAHU say regarding them? A lot of these changes have to do with language that's used on web broker websites or agents' websites, words that wording that's used in, in different scripts when talking to consumers. And there have been reports recently that non-ACA plans have been marketed to consumers unknowingly, and they have enrolled in plans that they thought were major medical plans, and they found out that they weren't, that they were a collection of supplemental plans that were put together, or a short-term plan, or a health sharing ministry, or, or something else, something other than what the consumer had intended to enroll in. And so this is trying to get at that aspect. And also trying to, I think, just shift and react to changes in the market. So early on in the ACA, we had very similar rules that came out in the Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters that restricted certain wording on websites so that it wouldn't be misleading for consumers. Things like you can't have a website that's healthcare.com instead of healthcare.gov because that's very confusing to the consumer thinking that they're going to the exchange website. So here, it's just adding on to some of those restrictions, but making sure that it's clear to the consumer if they're on one of those websites, what products they are enrolling in. So really reacting to the fact that there are these other types of plans in the market, like those short-term plans and health sharing plans and others that weren't as abundant years ago when the exchanges opened. So reacting to that and making sure that they're putting consumer protections in place. It also restricts web brokers from structuring their website so that the issuers at the top of the website, those that pop up first, are the ones that are giving them the highest commission. So they're making sure that web brokers are presenting the plans in a random fashion. This is also a kind of variant of regulations that we have seen previously. So none of this is overly concerning to us. And we do believe in the end serves to protect the consumer. So where these might just create some very small burdens for members to adjust a few things on their websites for the most part. These are things that you all are already complying with to make sure that you are explaining the plans as best as you can to the consumers that you're working with. So one section of the NBPP proposes reversing some changes made to non-discrimination protections back in the 2020 edition of the NBPP. What exactly is CMS seeking to change here? This is, again, similar to what we saw earlier, a reversal or or going back to some standards that we had previously under the Obama administration. Under the Trump administration, it was the MVPP for 2020. The Trump administration went back and changed some of the non-discrimination rules to allow discrimination to take place based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And so this is 
going back and taking that off the books and not allowing for discrimination of any type based on sexual orientation or gender identity. This is something that we supported when the Obama administration put it in place. So we are again here supporting the Biden administration for reinstating this after the Trump administration took it out of the rules. The proposed 2023 NBPP also deals with the verification process to determine a beneficiary's eligibility status for qualified employer-sponsored coverage. What changes are being made here, and did NAHU voice any concerns? We did, Dan. So currently, as many of you know, through both the employer reporting process and the way in which individuals apply for premium tax credits and the reconciliation that happens with their individual taxes, there is a a long process that's put forward to try to make sure that individuals who are offered affordable employer-sponsored coverage do not go into the exchanges and get a tax credit for an individual plan. And the proposal here would allow for states that have state exchanges to develop a different system to try to address the stop gap here. We cautioned that because of the different federal reporting processes, that this could cause a lot of confusion for states to be able to do something different here. I think this is where, from another perspective, NEHU feels that this is a great opportunity to advocate for the Common Sense Reporting Act that we have pending in Congress because it would allow for employers up front to report to the exchanges who they have offered employer-sponsored coverage to at an affordable rate, so that when and if that individual sought an individual plan on the exchange and sought a tax credit, it would immediately prevent them from being able to enroll on it. So that to us is a better way to address this than by trying to piecemeal this together and allow states to have a different way of processing this on top of all of the reporting that we already have on the federal level. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So what are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to the Texas and Georgia chapters of NEHU. Both of them held their days at the Capitol this week. They were back in person and able to meet with many of the members of their state legislatures. So we are hoping that all of you around the country are continuing to be active with your state chapters and engaging with your state legislators. And of course, we're looking forward to seeing you all at our National Day at the Capitol for Capitol Conference here in Washington, D.C., February 27th to March 2nd. So go to NEHU.org and register today. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.